Okay, so it's me again. And, and uh, I just want to clarify one, one, one point. Um, uh, I have been preaching this uh, Seven Signs series of John Gospel, and this is not the Seven Sign. Okay, even though it is called the Sign of Emmanuel, this is Advent. Okay, this is separate. Uh, I have yet to finish that Seven Sign series, but looking forward to next year for that. Uh, so today is the first week of Advent, which kicks off. Uh, the countdown of this four-week anticipation of Christmas. I've always liked Christmas, and the approaching of the celebration of the birth of Jesus never stops excites me. This is, there's a Christmas song uh, called It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year by Andy Williams. And now this, at this most wonderful time of the year, well, we can see decorations everywhere. I mean, we have the decorations here. Uh, we, we can even hear uh, Christmas songs that are played everywhere you go. Whether it's in a mall, in a supermarket, in a gas station, or even Starbucks. And apparently, life is stressful. So, it's human nature to want to have this wonderful time of the year that we can feel relaxed, relieved, or feel comforted, or even feel hopeful. Now, even though our society recognizes or even encourages such need for a wonderful time in a year, the core and the fundamental value of this wonderful time of the year is no longer widely accepted or respected. We sing joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Nowadays, though the society desperately desires joy to the world, it, however, increasingly boycotts the Lord is come. The views of Christmas in the Western culture has changed so dramatically over the last 30 years. And this change is the biggest over the last 1,000 years. Since 30 years ago, the word Christmas has been increasingly replaced by other so-called politically neutral terms, such as uh, holiday or season. But the most significant de-Christianization, secularization or de-Christianization of Christmas has happened after the year 2000. Since the year 2000, the exclusion of Christian, uh, Christ, uh, Christian values in Christmas has gradually become legislations in the Western world. For example, in year 2002, the New York City public school system has banned the display of any religious symbol associated with Christianity, such as the cross or the nativity scene in Christmas. However, the displays of, uh, for example, uh, uh, Hanukkah uh, menorah's uh, lampstand or the Muslim star and crescent symbol are nevertheless allowed. All these have indicated to us that Christianity is no longer the mainstream influence in the culture. Rather, this faith of us has become more and more marginalized. In the last 10 years, such marginalization was worsened by the value 
The value system held strongly by Christians in issues such as same-sex marriage, abortion, or the use of drugs. Biblical truth has become not only irrelevant to a lot of people, but also offensive to the society in general. It's very hard for people before 1980s to believe that the greeting Merry Christmas would one day become offensive. People all want to have this wonderful time of the year. But now people also want the power to define the core and fundamental value of such wonderful time. The decline of Christmas tells, tells us that people don't want to need God. They prefer to need something else, such as money, politics, military powers, and so on. One of my favorite Christmas hymns is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In verse 2 it goes, Veiled in flesh in God has seen, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. But Emmanuel being rejected by men is not just a present-day scenario. It was like that 2,000 years ago. It was like that even 2,700 years ago. Well, why 2,700? What happened 700 years before Christ was born? Well, it's because the origin of the term Emmanuel came to existence in the Old Testament time, 700 years before Christ was born. Before we look at the Old Testament origin of the name Emmanuel, let's take a look of how this name Emmanuel came into association with Jesus. I'm going to ask uh, Willis to read to us the passage about Jesus coming to birth, uh, Matthew chapter 1. 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate, consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let us all pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you. We thanks for your, give thanks to your spirit that has inspired Matthew to have recorded this precious passage so that we can understand What's your purpose of having Jesus coming to birth, become one of us? We give thanks to you, and may your spirit guide us to experience the reality of, of this passage like never before. We give thanks to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So what's the real name of Jesus, or of the Messiah? Should we call him Jesus, or should we call him Emmanuel? Well, obviously, the scripture said that Joseph eventually named the baby Messiah Jesus. But did he forget about the name Emmanuel? Well, maybe that's Jesus' middle name. Right? Then he'll become a Jim. Jesus, Emmanuel, Messiah. Or maybe Joseph cannot remember so many details. I mean, after all, it's a dream. Now, how often do you remember the full detail of your dream? Of course he did not forget. Otherwise, how would Matthew come to know about this dream? The question to ask is, why nobody ever called Jesus Emmanuel when the angel clearly said, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. But the name has only appeared once in the New Testament, right here. So even Matthew has not mentioned this name again. It's not found at all in the Gospels of Mark, Luke, or John. Jesus never asked people to call him Emmanuel. He never introduced himself as Emmanuel. Why is that? Well, these questions are not difficult to answer. The key to these questions is found in verse 22, when it says, it is to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The angel did not ask Joseph to name Jesus Emmanuel. No. Jesus is the only name for the baby Messiah. The angel was not making a command. He was only quoting a scripture in the Old Testament to describe the birth of the Messiah. In this verse of the Old Testament, the virgin was not referring to Mary. And Emmanuel was not referring to Jesus. This verse is found in the book of Isaiah chapter 7. Now let me read to you the verse from 13 to 17 in chapter 7 of Isaiah. And it says, Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim, broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In Isaiah chapter 6, the chapter before this, the most well-known line of the whole prophetic book can be found in verse 8, 6, 8. And it is when Isaiah said to God, Here I am, send me. I mean, most of us would be familiar with this verse, right? Here I am, send me. But after Isaiah made this commitment, send me God, God then revealed to him what he has gotten himself into. 
God told Isaiah that he will be preaching to the people whose hearts are closed, ears are dull, and eyes were closed. Or maybe Isaiah should have asked more clearly before committing. But the first job Isaiah received as a prophet was to talk to the newly crowned king Ahaz. Well, Ahaz was a perfect example of a person whose heart was closed, ears were dull, and eyes were closed. So when the name Emmanuel was, was first mentioned in the Bible, you can probably guess whether it is warmly received or grimly rejected. The background of Isaiah 7 was the time when Ahaz was recently crowned as king of Judah. But while he was still a rookie on the throne, he had encountered a very difficult political dilemma. At the beginning of chapter 7, it says, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king reason of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. In simpler form, Aram and Israel combined force to attack Judah. Now, the house of David was told by probably some spies of, of Judah, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Ephraim is just Israel, the, 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 another name of Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. In simple form, Aram and Israel are attacking Judah and the newly crowned king Ahaz was freaking out. Now this rookie on the throne, King Ahaz, had to deal with this very complex yet delicate political dilemma. The kingdom of Judah was already a weak nation in terms of military power and, and economic influence. Now, it was attacked by two northern nations, Israel and Aram. Aram is actually uh, 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 Syria right now. You can see the picture. This is the map. The purple color, this is Judah, this is Israel, and this is Aram. And you can see, Judah is surrounded by different enemies. Philistines, Moab, Edom and south is Egypt. And then Israel is here and Aram is here. So right now, well in this scripture, Israel and Aram, they are combining force and they are attacking Jerusalem. And you can see Jerusalem is right here, which is very close to the border. And this is a very dangerous situation here. The crisis was very imminent. The reason that Israel and Aram wanted to attack Judah was in fact not of invasion. What happened at that time was that a much more powerful nation in the north, Assyria, which is right here, Assyria is in the north, was expanding its army to the south as part of its imperialistic campaign. As a result, Israel and Aram, they they are combining forces in order to have a better chance to defend their territory against the mighty and brutal Assyrian warriors. But realizing that their power was far from being comparable to that of the Assyria, Israel and Aram attempted to force Judah 
to join force with them to enhance their combat capacity. As a result, when Ahaz, the king of Judah, declined to join force with Israel and Aram, these two nations decided to attack Jerusalem. But they did not intend to occupy Judah. All they intended to do was to threaten Ahaz to join force with them or to create so much instability and fear within Judah that would eventually force Ahaz to be dethroned so that they could manipulate the new puppet king. And hence, King Ahaz was facing tremendous political pressure to comply. But specifically, Ahaz had two choices. He had two options. First, first option, he could choose to join force with Israel and Aram to jointly defend against Assyria. But if this decision became a wrong bet, he would lose everything, including his throne. Joining force with Israel and Aram would certainly displease the powerful Assyria. And the notorious Assyria was very well known for its cruelty and bloodiness because they employed the strategy of massacre wherever they conquered a city. So the second option, Ahaz could choose to reject Israel and Aram and to surrender to Assyria and to become its vassal country. As a vassal kingdom, Ahaz could seek protection from Assyria against Israel and Aram. But if he chose to side with Assyria, it's not without concerns. But first, water afar cannot quench fire nearby. But second, if surrendered to Assyria, Judah would then have to pledge allegiance to Assyria, which would include worshipping the Assyrian god. But nevertheless, after evaluating the two options, Ahaz had decided to go for option two, which was to surrender to, uh, to Assyria. But, in this crucial time, God had through the, the prophet Isaiah given a third option to King Ahaz. And the scripture goes like this. God said to, to, to Ahaz through Isaiah, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because the fierce anger of reason and, and Aram and of the son of Ramaliah, it will not take place. It will not happen. It says they will not succeed. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God, through prophet Isaiah, spoke to Ahaz, telling him not to be afraid of Israel and Aram, saying that they were only smoldering stubs of firewood, which means that there's only smoke, no fire. They are just bluffing. God told Ahaz not to be afraid, because fear will almost always obscure our vision and our basic logic, and would likely bring even bigger damages. So God told Ahaz not to join force with Israel and Aram, and surely not to surrender to the evil Assyria. God gave Ahaz a third option, which is to keep calm 
and do nothing. But the word keep calm literally means do nothing and watch. Don't join force. Don't surrender. Just by faith, do nothing and watch how God is going to handle it. Well, honestly, the third option is quite against human nature. It's the most difficult option psychologically. Right? When facing adversity, our instinct is either to fight or flight. But God wanted a heart to neither fight nor flight, but instead calm down, do nothing, and be patient. That's tough. For a heart, that was a significant test of faith. This test was, would, would determine not only his relationship with God, his own faith, but also the faith of the kingdom of Judah. God made it clear about the consequence of Ahaz's choice that if he did not stand firm in his faith, he would not stand at all. He and his kingdom will be destroyed. So how did Ahaz choose? Well, before that, let's look at what kind of person Ahaz was. I mean, if we know what kind of person he was, then we know what kind of decision he will make. In 2 Kings chapter 16, it gave us a brief bio of King Ahaz. And it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he become, became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, or his ancestor, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, of course, to idol. Engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before Israel. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high place on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Of course, not to the Lord, but to the idols. So in short, he's a bad guy. A typical villain in, in, in the biblical narrative. For such an evil king, he must be collapsed in the heart, dull in ears, and closed in eyes. Therefore, Ahaz did not even consider God's decree as an option at all. He just said, forget it. But even so, God was so merciful to Ahaz, so God continued to speak to Ahaz through prophet Isaiah. And the scripture goes, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Do, do you see how unbelievably, unbelievably nice God was treating Ahaz? God let him choose a sign, any sign, in any form, as he wished. No restriction, no condition. Wow! How generous God was to him. What, what if it is you? What sign would you choose? I mean, think about it. What sign would you choose? Be as creative as you can. The appearance of an angel? Supernatural power over you? Like teleportation, telepathy? Or even the biggest strength in eating McDonald's for three months and you could still lose weight? You name it. 
as creative as you can. However, asking for such a sign is not just a test of a heart's creativity. It's also a test of his faith. If Ahaz really asked for such a sign, then he would have to give up his own authority to make the call. Do you get me? When Ahaz asked God for a sign, then and if God granted him the sign exactly as he asked for, then Ahaz would have no choice but to follow God's command, which is to come down and do nothing. You know? Asking a sign from God is not something we can take it lightly. We can ask for a sign, but we cannot ask for a sign lightly. Asking a sign from God is very solemn and serious matter. It's a matter that requires your faith and obedience as the basis of your petition. So how did Ahaz respond to God's invitation to ask for a sign? Scripture tells us that Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Wow. You see? Ahaz refused to ask the sign God offered him. He refused the grace God extended to him. He shut off God by stating a seemingly magnificently spiritual excuse as a dress-up. He said he would not put God to the test. How noble this guy was. Right? No. If we think about it carefully, what Ahaz just said was in fact an even worse test of God. He told, God told him to ask for a sign, but he said that asking for a sign meant putting God to a test. Then what he meant was that God has asked him to commit a sin. God the deliverer became God the tempter. So obviously, Ahaz refused to ask for a sign was not because of his faith or his loyalty to God. Absolutely not. He refused because he had already made up his mind. He did not need this seemingly ridiculous first choice from God. He was not willing to stay calm and to put faith in God. No. He rather put faith in his own wisdom or the wisdom of his own political advisors, to rectify this situation he is facing. The excuse of a heart might seem noble, but nothing can be hidden from God, not even one's motive. Therefore, God continued to speak to a heart through Isaiah. Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? I mean, do you see how frustrated God was with Ahaz? While haven't we also frustrated God more or less like how Ahaz did? The basic attitude of Ahaz was that while God, while he himself can handle his situation, while he still has options, he preferred God to stay out of his way. He preferred God to be his insurance instead of his guidance. He rather saw God, Emmanuel, as a disposable assistant, instead of an ever-present leader. I mean, maybe we should not judge Ahaz too harshly, because how different are we to him? 
the attitude towards God, like this kind of attitude, was very common, yet subtle among Christians. You know, we are living in an on-demand culture. Everything is on-demand. I mean, sermon can be on-demand, right? Worship can be on-demand. Our culture is getting so consumer-focused. That's why any product or service is trying to meet this on-demand desire of customers. That's why Netflix is getting so popular, right? Because you, you can, you're not bounded by time or by location to watch your favorite movies or TV shows. The model of this is wherever, whenever, and whatever. You know, this kind of mentality could easily influence how we see God and how we experience His presence. We can very subtly want God's presence to be on demand. God Emmanuel, wherever, whenever, and however you want it. Isn't it nice? Do you see the shadow of a house in us? Well, a house refused to ask for a sign. But God ignored him and went ahead to give him a sign anyway. And it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the king of the, the land of the two kings, Israel and Aram, you dread will be laid waste. Now you can probably see that in this passage, the virgin did not refer to Mary, and the baby did not refer to Jesus, at least to Ahaz. If the only reference is made to Mary and Jesus, this, then this sign would not be realized until 700 or more years later. And by then, Ahaz would have been long gone. This sign would be meaningless to him. Also, the threat of Israel and Aram was in fact eliminated in about two years after this sign was given to Ahaz. Therefore, this sign of a virgin giving birth to a baby must be a sign that Ahaz could witness in his time. Also, even the scripture mentioned a virgin. It did not mention that the baby was born from a virgin. In fact, the sign can be understood as a young woman, a virgin, in the king's palace, which, who would soon get married and then give birth to a baby whom she would name Emmanuel, probably not knowing about the sign given to Ahaz. And Ahaz would be able to see such baby coming to birth. The sign further says that when this baby boy, Emmanuel, was still very young, the nations of Israel and Aram would retrieve their armies and would no longer threaten Judah. From a historical point of view, the sign was fully materialized when the baby was about one year old. But sadly, Ahaz still decided to ignore the sign. He stubbornly held on to his decision to surrender to Assyria. He went ahead to pledge allegiance to the Assyrian king and the Assyrian god. Therefore, after giving Ahaz the sign of deliverance, God did not stop there. 
but gave him a statement of judgment because of his disobedience. God said, The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim, which is Israel, broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. The Assyria that Ahaz surrendered to would eventually become the tool of judgment from God, causing an even more devastating calamity for Judah than what Israel and Aram would have caused them. This narrative of origin of the name of Emmanuel might seem very complex in the first sight, but it actually gives us a very straightforward spiritual reality. Emmanuel means God with us. Therefore, the arrival of Emmanuel could be both a gracious salvation and a devastating judgment. It depends on how a person responds to God's presence. God Emmanuel. If the response was like that of Ahaz, which is of rejection, disregard or denial, then such response would put that person out of God's presence and into God's judgment. The name Emmanuel appears only twice in the entire Old Testament. The first time was in Isaiah 7, which we, we just studied. And the last time is in Isaiah 8, the, 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 the chapter afterwards, which is a continuation of God's judgment against Ahaz. In chapter 8, 7, and 7 to 8 verse, it says, Therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty flood waters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breath of your land, Emmanuel. This passage has made it very clear. If one rejects God, Emmanuel, then his fate will be of dire and tragic consequence. If one accepts and put his or her trust in God, Emmanuel, then Emmanuel, God's presence, will be like outspread wings that cover and protect from even the worst floodwaters. 700 years and some years later, in the era of the New Testament, when Matthew was writing the Gospel, we now know that the angel did not ask Joseph to call baby Messiah Emmanuel. No, the only, the, that's not what the, the, the angel meant. What the angel meant is that when Jesus was born, Emmanuel was no longer just a sign. In Jesus, the ultimate Emmanuel had arrived. The incarnate Son of God through a virgin had come to us. God's presence was among us. But what's amazing was not just God's presence among us, but God was among us in flesh, through birth, being a fragile baby, born in a manger, raised as a child, experienced death and sorrow, just like any human being. And at the end, He would save mankind from the most dire and devastating consequence of sin, which is much more 
horrible and terrible than the massacre of Assyria. God, Emmanuel, Jesus, came as one of us and reversed the fate of mankind. Just think about it. In a harsh time, the consequence of rejecting merely a sign of Emmanuel was already so unbearable. What would happen if anyone rejects the real deal, the true Emmanuel? It's quite beyond anyone's worst imagination. So brothers and sisters, when we see the world, our society increasingly choose to live outside the presence of God. And when we see Christmas as being secularized or de-Christianized like never before, and if our ears are not dull, and if our eyes are not closed, you know what we can see? We can see one ahas after another living around us. Just like ahas, the world is telling us that we can control our lives, that we can have total sovereignty of our life in this on-demand world. Perhaps people still don't know, just like ahas, that the very thing that they count on would become the worst judgment and destruction that they are trying so hard to escape. As a result, brothers and sisters, I plead to you that as Christians, Christmas serves as a warning sign that we must proclaim God, Emmanuel, Jesus as the only Savior to the world. You know, in the Great Commission, Jesus also mentioned Emmanuel. Not exactly the word, but his meaning. And he said, after he was risen from dead, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Which line here is Emmanuel? Of course, when Jesus said, I am with you always. So, brothers and sisters, let's commit ourselves to be a God's man and woman who respects the meaning of Emmanuel, who surrenders to God's presence and follows His command to do all we can to fulfill this great commission. Go and spread the gospel. Go and make disciples. Never ever treat God's presence as just our insurance, or our on-demand assistance. Veil in flesh the God has seen. Hail the incarnate deity. Please as men, as with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Brothers and sisters, in this most wonderful time of the year, may God bless you all with a courageous spirit and a gospel-driven mission. Let us all pray together. Our Holy Father, as Christmas is approaching, we ask that you, you will strengthen us and your strength will be upon us that we will be bold witnesses to God Emmanuel in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that your gracious salvation will be made known to our dear ones who have not yet given their lives to Jesus and that your presence 
will be made known to our society so that in the resurrection power of Jesus, people will be drawn to God Emmanuel. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.